mate. Evening, folks. Are we a bit echoey? Or does it sound all right? Sounds all right? All right. Excellent. Great. Hey, uh, if you've got your Bible uh, open, can you leave it open to Colossians? That'll be really helpful. Um, this is uh, off topic. Can I uh, encourage you, church, to bring a physical Bible to church with you? And if you don't own a physical Bible, we have free Bibles out there on the welcome desk. We'd love to give you one to take home, make it your Bible. The reason why I reckon this is really worth doing, and I'm, I'm speaking to a younger generation here, uh, most of us have probably switched across to um, using Bible apps. That's fine. It's helpful. It's great. The downside to that is that one day you're going to die. And um, sorry to break that to you. Uh, you're going to die, and you're not going to be able to leave behind your Bible app for your, the next generation. Do you know that? You are going to be able to leave behind a physical Bible, and in it, the proof that you have searched for God, you've been listening to God's voice your whole life. That's a wonderful legacy to leave for people after you. I think it'd be worth us investing in getting used to our physical Bible. So there's my little challenge for you. That's got nothing to do with anything tonight, by the way. Sorry, just felt like the need to mention that. Colossians 1 is where we are. I'm going to pray because that passage, as Pete mentioned, is dense. Some good meat in there for us tonight. So uh, join me in pray and let's ask for God's help. Uh, Almighty God, we thank you so much for your word, the Bible. We thank you that you have spoken to us and you've revealed yourself to us in it. And we thank you ultimately that you've revealed yourself through the person of your son, the Lord Jesus. And we thank you so much, Father, that uh, as we get to just camp out in this passage and and fix our eyes on Jesus, and we get to see him in all of his glory and his splendor tonight. God, we need eyes of faith to be able to do that. Uh, We need to be able to, to see Jesus as he really is. And so please, by your spirit, help us to do that tonight. Help us to see Jesus and to love him. We pray for his sake. Amen. Uh, well, in, uh, in recent years, I've uh, become a, uh, a real advocate of Spotify. I was agnostic for a while. I resisted. didn't think it was my thing. Uh, but then I finally got converted, and now I'm going to hold on to Spotify until I die. If you don't know what Spotify is, it's a music streaming service. Uh, it's a, a, a company that have a library of kind of almost every artist and every song that's ever been made or anything you'd ever want to listen to. And you can just log on to their website, you can go to the app, listen to anything that you want, anytime. Unlimited music. It's great. I'm a big fan of it. So much so, in fact, that I've actually started to give Spotify subscriptions to people as presents. And I think it's, it's working out pretty well. I've given one to my dad for the last two years. I've been paying for his Spotify subscription. He loves it as well. He gets to listen to all of his Welsh choir music and whatever else he wants to listen to whenever he wants. Working out really well. The one downside of doing that has been that I've kind of shot myself in the foot. Because uh, I always used to give my dad CDs for presents. Uh, birthday, give him a CD. Father's Day, give him a CD. Christmas, give him a CD. Uh, now I can't do that anymore. <laughs> There's, it's redundant. He, he has it all anyway. Uh, and so I've kind of got nothing left to give him. That's a bit of a problem. Now, I don't know whether you use Spotify, whether you've, you've bought the subscription, pay the 10 bucks a month to get your access to everything that you ever wanted. Uh, but I want you to, to just entertain a, a hypothetical situ- situation with me for a sec. I want you to imagine that you do have the full subscription to Spotify. Uh, you, you love it, you use it, you, there you are at home with your earphones in, listening to whatever it is you want to listen to, enjoying access to all the music in the world. And there's a knock on your door. You go and open the front door, and there's a finely dressed man standing at your front door with a suitcase. And he says, oh, good evening, sir, good evening, madam. Oh, you're listening to music, great. Uh, well, it's your lucky day, because as it would happen, I'm here to, to, to offer you some music. 
I have in my suitcase here, and he opens his big brown suitcase, all the CDs that you could ever be interested in. Can I, can I offer them to you? You like music, would you like some more music? It's right here, they're cheap. This would be a great way for you to expand your music collection. Now, what do you do in that moment as this CD salesman stands on your front door? You'd be crazy, wouldn't you, to actually buy anything that this guy's offering? Because you've got Spotify, you've got everything, right? Now, just hold that scenario in your mind for a second, because what's going on in this letter, this letter of the, to the Colossian church, is a situation very similar to that. You see, what had happened in this city of ancient Colossae is that these religious door-to-door salesmen had rocked up, and they were trying to offer the Colossians something that they already had. Uh, you can actually see, if you look at uh, Colossians chapter 2, this is the passage we're going to look at next week, Colossians chapter 2, verse 4, Paul warns the Colossians about these people. He says, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. He, he wants the Colossians to make sure that they don't buy what these religious salesmen are selling. And you can kind of piece it together. You can figure out what they were selling as you keep reading through the letter. Essentially, what they had done is they'd come along and they'd said, Hey, Colossians, you've got faith in Jesus, right? You've heard the gospel. You put your trust in Christ. Great. That's wonderful. That's really good. Now, would you like some more of that? I, we, we have something we could offer you. We could offer you the deluxe version of the Christian life, all that stuff that you're missing out on. We've got more food for you. Would you like it? And so this is the kind of thing that they're offering. They're saying to the Colossians, Colossians, we can put you in contact with angels and spirits those, those bigwigs in the spiritual realm, and they'll be able to answer all of your prayers. They'll be able to give you everything that you want. You can have more Colossians. Just, just buy what we're offering. Or how about this? They're saying, Colossians, your, your regular worship, that's a bit dull, a bit uninspired. How would you like some ecstatic worship experiences? I mean, we could offer you the full package, lights, smoke machines, turn the volume all the way up to 11. We could give you the real worship experience. You interested in that? We've got more. Another thing they're offering, they're saying, Colossians, we could guarantee you eternal security. How about that? We can give you that thing that you need to make sure that your eternity in heaven is 100% rock-solid certain. We can give you that thing that will make God extra happy with you. Would you like it? We've got it right here in our suitcase. That's the kind of situation that's going on in Colossae. These, these salesmen, you see, what they were doing, they were preying on this, that kind of nagging feeling that maybe there's something lacking in my Christian life. Have you ever had that kind of feeling? Maybe I'm missing out on something in the Christian life. Maybe I don't have the full package. Maybe there is something out there that I've not quite grabbed onto yet. That's the feeling these salesmen were preying on. Now, let's return back to this CD salesman on your doorstep, this hypothetical situation. Uh, as you're standing there, stroking your beard, contemplating whether you are going to buy any CDs, what would be the, the best way for your kind uh, flatmate or your spouse, somebody else standing inside with you, what would be the best way for them to convince you not to part with your hard-earned cash? What would be the best way? The salesman pulls out a CD. Oh, would you like some, some Ed Sheeran? No, your, your flatmate, your housemate, your, your spouse just stands there with Spotify open and says, no, you've already got Ed Sheeran in Spotify. You don't, you don't need Ed Sheeran anymore. Oh, well, I, I could offer you an ACDC CD. No, 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 you don't need it. It's right here in Spotify. You've got everything you need right here 
Don't bother parting ways with your money. That would be the best way for your, your housemate to stop you from buying this stuff, right? Well, can I say that what the Apostle Paul is doing for us in this passage tonight is essentially that job. He's saying to the Colossians, Colossians, no, 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 no. You don't need to buy that thing that the, the salesman is offering. You've already got it in Jesus. Just see what you have in Jesus. You've got everything in Jesus. You don't need anything else. So essentially what Paul is doing is he's, he's trying to open their eyes to see just how big and magnificent Jesus is. And I think that begs the question for us, just before we dive into the passage, the question that I think we have to ask ourselves is, well, how big is our Jesus? How big is the Jesus that you claim to follow? How significant and important to you is Jesus? How much real estate does Jesus occupy in your mind and in your heart? It's an important question. Because if you think of Jesus as smaller and less significant than he really is, then you are going to be vulnerable to the same kinds of sales pitches that were going on in Colossae at this time. You're going to be vulnerable to think, maybe I am missing out on something in the Christian life. Maybe I should look somewhere else to see if I can find that thing that I'm, I'm missing out on. If you think Jesus is smaller than he really is, the, the reality is that you are going to suffer the same kind of doubts and insecurities that the Colossians were prone to suffer from. You're going to lack the assurance and the joy that you should have from knowing Jesus. It's really important that you understand just how big, just how magnificent Jesus really is. And so let's have a look in the passage. And what I want to show you is, I think, three kind of aspects of Jesus' identity. That's what we're going to have a look at. And the first one uh, is right there for us from verse 15 down to about verse 17, where I think Paul wants to show us that this Jesus is the Lord of creation. It's the Lord of creation. Okay, so let's read verse 15. Paul kind of he hits the ground running in verse 15. He's off at full speed. And he starts with this mind-blowing statement where he says that the Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. The image of the invisible God, not an image. We are, as you probably know, made in the image of God. We're, we're image bearers, but in a different way to Jesus. We, we poorly reflect God's image. Jesus is not like that. He's the definitive image of what God is like. You see, Jesus, he makes that invisible God visible. He's the image. He makes that unknowable God knowable. Uh, do you remember in, in John's Gospel... Uh, John chapter 14, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's just been telling them that the time is going to come where he's going to have to leave and go back to heaven, back to his father's house. And the disciples are upset about it. And before uh, Jesus departs, Philip says to him, Jesus, before you go, show us the father. We want to see the father, Jesus. What is Jesus' response? Do you remember? He rebukes Philip. And he says, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. That's, that's the incredible truth here, that if you've seen Jesus... You've seen God. That's, that is astounding. It should knock you off your feet. Because you remember in, in the Old Testament, if you were an Old Testament saint, the concept of you seeing God would have struck you with terror. Because if you saw God with your naked eyes, if you saw even a glimpse of God's glory, you would die in the Old Testament. How can unholy people lay eyes upon a perfectly holy God? You can't. That was how distant God is. And yet, when Jesus comes along, the paradigm changes, doesn't it? 
What does John 1 say, the beginning of John's gospel? The word became flesh, made his dwelling amongst us, and we have seen his glory. We've seen God. Jesus is the image of God. So you look at Jesus and you know what God is like. You look at Jesus' mercy, his compassion, his love, his grace, his power, his patience, his faithfulness. You say, that's what my God is like. It's the image of the invisible God. And this is just the first title in this long kind of resume that Paul lays out for Jesus here. He goes on with an equally amazing title just in the next breath. He says that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. See that in verse 15? It's the firstborn over all creation. Now, don't, don't mistake this. This is not saying that Jesus was the first creature to be created by God. That's not what this is saying. The Jehovah's Witnesses, some other Christian sects, will try and say that that's what this means, but they're wrong. That's not what the word firstborn means here. The word firstborn gets used all throughout the Bible, and in Old Testament particularly, to refer to kind of like the firstborn son, the firstborn son who gets the inheritance from their parents. King David in the Old Testament is referred to as the firstborn over Israel. doesn't mean he was the first Israelite ever born. He certainly wasn't. It means he's the king. He's the one in charge. He's the ruler. That's Jesus. He's the firstborn. Firstborn over what? Over all creation. He is the heir to creation. It all belongs to him. And, and, and Paul says in the, in the next verse, verse 16, he explains why Jesus is that firstborn ruler. Well, it's because Jesus created everything. He rules it because he created it. And, and do you notice the distinction there in verse 16? Paul is trying to help us to see that, that Jesus is the creator, not part of the created he says, in him, or maybe if you've got your Bible there, some of the older translations will say, by him. It's an equally good translation. By him, all things were created. You get the distinction? There is the creator, and there is created stuff, and Jesus belongs over here on the creator side. That's who Jesus is. And if you get that wrong, if you, if you misplace Jesus in the wrong category, then you will never truly know Jesus. You will never truly worship Jesus, and you won't be saved. There's a lot at stake in getting this right. But I think Paul's point here is actually just, he wants to focus us on, on the scope of what Jesus created. Yeah, The scope, see how much Jesus is responsible for. What does it say? What things were created by him? All things. All things. What does that leave out? Nothing. <laughs> and Paul, he, Paul could have just stopped there, couldn't he? Full stop. I've said, I've said my piece, Jesus created everything, but he can't help himself. He wants to clarify for us, make sure we really understand what it means that Jesus created all things. So Jesus, he created things in heaven and on earth. What does that leave out? Nothing. That's everything. Remember Genesis chapter 1, verse 1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, everything. Jesus created everything, all things. Could have stopped there, but he doesn't stop there either. He keeps going. And he says, oh, Jesus created not just the visible stuff, you know, the stuff we can touch and smell and taste and see. No, Jesus created the the invisible stuff too. All that stuff behind the scenes, the, the spiritual realm. Jesus created that too. And he could have just stopped there, but he can't help himself. And he keeps going. And he says, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, all these angels, these spirits. Yes, even the devil himself. Jesus created everything. He's comprehensively the creator. If Jesus did not create it, it don't exist. 
That's the point Paul's making. Can you wrap your head around that? It is hard to really fathom, isn't it? It's so hard that I think actually what we want to do at this point, what we should do, is slow down uh, and just, just dwell on this, chew on this reality for a little while. What does it mean that Jesus created all things? Let's wrestle with that for a bit. Uh, if, you, uh, if you go out into the country and it's a clear night sky and there's no light pollution around and you look up, then you will see on a good night uh, about 2,500 stars. That's, that's roughly what 2,500 stars looks like in the night sky. Staggering, beautiful, stunning. That's a lot of stars, isn't it? Each one, you know, comparably sized to the sun in our solar system. 2,500 stars. And Jesus created every single one of them. But do you know, in our solar system, sorry, in our galaxy, in the Milky Way, there's a lot more than 2,500 stars. There are approximately 100 billion stars in just our galaxy in the Milky Way. 100 billion stars. And so do you know that means that the 2,500 stars that you see and that you are staggered by, that represents, here's this, a quarter of one ten millionth of a percent of all the stars that are in our galaxy. It's completely nothing, next to zero. Jesus created all of those stars, the 100 billion of them in our galaxy. And keep tracking with me here. You realise as well that our galaxy is not the only galaxy, is it? Scientists say that an estimate is that there are at least 10 billion galaxies as big as ours. 10 billion galaxies with 100 billion stars. You know how many stars that is? That's one with 24 zeros after it. That is 1 billion trillion stars. Think of, think of a trillion stars. This is so hard to comprehend, isn't it? A trillion stars. Not just a trillion, not just two trillion. No, a billion trillion. And Jesus created all of them. Every single one. All the planets orbiting around them. All of the space in between. All of it. Jesus made all of it. That's big, isn't it? Just keep that in mind and zoom all the way down to the other end of the spectrum. Zoom down to your daily reality. If Jesus made everything, what does it mean for you? It means that he made you. He made me. That the creator of the universe, the one that flung stars into space fashioned and crafted you with your unique personality, your unique character traits, a unique individual, every single one of us, made by the creator of the universe. Who are you? You are a creature of the creator. Why are you here? Well, Paul tells us, actually, back in, in verse 16. See what he says there at the end of verse 16? He says that all things were created for him. And you could, it's, it's such a small phrase, those two words, for him. You could just read right over it and go right on to the next verse. But do you realize, friends, that th those two words tell you the meaning of life? Do you know that? All things were created for Jesus. Your existence is for Jesus. The purpose of your life is for Jesus, to glorify him, to experience him, to be in relationship with him. That's the meaning of life. You, you know, we live in a world that does not know the answer to that question, right? 
Why are we here? What, what is it all about? What should we give ourselves to? The world does not have an answer to that question. But we do, if we're Christians. We know the meaning of life. Our lives exist for Jesus, for his glory. You know, contrary to the, the wisdom of our world, which will tell us, actually, the, the way you should live your life is just try and maximize your own happiness. Get it all for yourself. Do what pleases you. That's the best thing you can do in this life. No, Scripture tells us otherwise. It says, no, 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 this world does not exist for you. In fact, it's the opposite way around. You and everything else exist for Jesus. It's for him. Paul says that this Jesus, who, who everything was created by and for, well, he is he's before all things, verse 17. There was never a time when Jesus was not. Now, uh, I have a three-year-old daughter, and uh, she's um, starting to get to the point where she's taking photo albums off our shelves, and she's flicking back through it and asking a lot of questions about them. She particularly likes taking off our wedding photo album and, and looking at photos of mummy and daddy all dressed up. And she, she constantly asks, when she looks at these old photos from a decade plus ago, she says, where, where am I in this photo? She's three years old. Said, Sweetheart, you weren't in that photo. Did I take that photo? No, you didn't take that photo. Where was, was I out of the photo? No, sweetheart, you didn't take that photo. You, you weren't born yet. Well, that's a stumper for a three-year-old to say to them, no, you, you didn't exist at that point. And so she pauses and she, she asks all the time. She says, so does that mean I was in mummy's tummy? I say, no. And I, I cut the conversation there because I don't want to follow that chain of reasoning any further with a three-year-old. But you can understand that for a three-year-old, it, it is mind-boggling that there could ever be a time when she didn't exist. But there was, of course there was, and there was for each of us as well. There was an eternity almost before we came into existence. But you can never say that about Jesus. There was never a moment when Jesus was not. It doesn't matter how far back you push your imagination. Chase it all the way back into, into Jesus' childhood. Chase it, chase it back to his birth. Keep going back in time, even to the moment of creation. Jesus existed then. He existed infinitely into the past and infinitely into the future as well. There was never a time when Jesus was not. Friends, are you starting to get your vision of Jesus enlarged at all tonight? This is a big Jesus, isn't it? Paul says there in verse 17 that this Jesus, he is the sustainer of creation as well. In him, all things hold together. We kind of use that language, don't we? When somebody is you know, juggling a lot of things, somebody's very busy, we say, wow, that person's really holding it all together. Well, Jesus is literally holding it all together, all of the universe, keeping it together. Jesus is the reason why the planets move in the precise motion that they do. Jesus is the reason why protons and electrons behave the way they do at an atomic level. The Son of God is, in the words of Hebrews 1, the one who sustains all things through the power of his word. Jesus is doing that right now, and we don't even realize it. It's amazing, isn't it? Uh, do you remember the, the film from a few years ago? I think it won an, an Oscar uh, called The Theory of Everything. It was the uh, biopic of Stephen Hawking, the physicist, uh, the guy who wrote A Brief History of Time. Uh, that title of that film, The, the Theory of Everything, uh, it refers to uh, this, this, this search for a, a grand, all-encompassing, single framework which links together all of the kind of physical aspects of the universe. And scientists have not been able to find that theory of everything. They can't 
explain the relationship of all things to all things. It's one of the, what they call the major unsolved problems in physics. There is no theory of everything. Well, friends, do you understand what we're being told here? It's that Jesus is the answer to that question. Jesus explains it. Jesus is the reason why all things hold together. He sustains all things. That means every, every moment, every breath, every atom, every ray of sun, every drop of rain kept, held together, goes forth in the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus is doing that right now, sustaining all things. He's the Lord of creation. So can you see the difference that this is going to start to make to your life if you understand that that is who Jesus is? It seems like the Colossians had gone looking for more kind of spiritual power by trying to get in contact with angels and spirits who could perhaps deliver the things that they wanted. But the reality for the Colossians was that they didn't, look to, they didn't need to look any further than Jesus. Jesus was the one that they should go to because he is the powerful creator, ruler, and sustainer of the universe. Jesus is utterly supreme in every way, isn't he? So do you see that once you have a clear picture of the supremacy of Jesus, you will never be tempted to pray to an angel, pray to Mary, pray to any other saint. You'll never go down that road because you'll know that Jesus is the one you want to get to. He's the one in charge. He's the one at the top of the food chain. And so you go directly to him and to him alone. Jesus is the one who holds the universe in his hands. And so the other implication for us is that that means that we never need to worry about Jesus taking care of us. That is so profound. That as we go through life, we never need to worry about whether Jesus is going to drop the ball with us, whether Jesus is going to let us down, let us slip through his fingers. Because Jesus is the one who holds a billion trillion stars in their place. And so that means, friends, that he can take care of little old you and little old me. We can trust Jesus. He's the Lord of creation. So trust him. That's the first thing that Paul wants to show us here. Second, and we're going to move quicker from this point on, the second thing that Paul wants to teach us is that Jesus is the Lord of the church too. He's the Lord of the church. So let's read from verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. He uses that language again, firstborn. He's the firstborn over all creation. Now he's the, the firstborn from among the dead. What's that saying? It's saying that Jesus is not just Lord of this creation. He's Lord of the new creation as well. And Paul says that this, this new creation of which we are a part, he says that Jesus is the head of this, this new bunch of people, this body, the church. Jesus is the head. He's the head of Wollongong Baptist Church. That's good news, isn't it? Let me tell you, you don't want Rod or myself or the new pastor when they arrive to be the head of this church. That will go badly for you. Jesus is a far better head of this church than we could ever be. Far better shepherd, far better leader. Jesus is the head and the church, his people, are his body. You, kind of, you read that language a bunch of times throughout the New Testament. Uh, and I think the point of that head and body kind of language, the point we're supposed to understand is that the, the relationship, the connection between Jesus and his people is so close that it's like a head and a body. It's indivisible. You can't have one without the other. It kind of doesn't work that way. They're a package deal. And, and so do understand that. Jesus and his people are so close to be like a head and a body. 
What does that mean for us? Well, Rod mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but I want to reiterate it for you because I think we still need to learn this lesson. That there are a lot of Christians who go through life thinking that they can have everything that Jesus offers them, but they'd rather not have anything to do with the church. There are plenty of Christians who think that. I'll just have my ticket to heaven. Thank you very much, Jesus. But I'm not really interested in partnering with your church. There's lots of messy people over there. I don't really want to love them. Don't really want to serve them. Don't really want to make myself vulnerable with them. And so I'll just do Christianity solo. Lots of people think that. But do you see what's wrong with that way of thinking? If Jesus is the head and the church is his body, then it's a package deal. You don't get to pick and choose. If you receive Jesus, you receive his church. If you love Jesus, you love his church. And in fact, if you don't love his church, then you don't love Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus says in, in Matthew chapter 25? Uh, Matthew 25, where Jesus is talking about uh, the, the final day of judgment, the day when Jesus will separate the sheep from the goats. And he will say to the sheep, come into my kingdom. And he will say to the goats, go away into outer darkness. Jesus says that the qualifying distinction about whether somebody belongs in one of those two categories. He says, whatever you did for one of the least of these, my brothers, and he's, he's talking there not just about people in general, he's talking about my brothers, talking about Christians. Whatever you did for one of the least of these, my brothers, you did for me, Jesus says. If you loved God's people, you loved Jesus. And conversely, if you did not love God's people, you didn't love Jesus. You see what Jesus is saying here? You cannot love him and not love his church. That's not an option for you. And so, friends, can I, can I urge you to make this a reality in your life? Don't keep church at arm's length. Don't keep God's people, his body, at arm's length. You are part of his body if you belong to Jesus. And so dive right in. Jesus' glory is at stake here. He's the head of the body, the church. The first, he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Literally, that, that word there, supremacy, it says, so that in everything he might be first. He's firstborn from among the dead. He's the firstborn over all creation, so that Jesus might be first. No silver medals for Jesus. Gold medals all the way. And the Colossian church needed to remember that. That's what they needed to learn here, that Jesus is the head of the church, and so he has got to be first place. He has got to be given center stage in their life together as a body. When they came together, it was Jesus that they were supposed to submit to and honor and glorify and worship. They didn't need to fix their eyes anywhere else. They didn't need to go and experience anything else. What they needed was to put Jesus first and to worship him. And so I think as we kind of apply this point to us, we need to realize that the same is true for us. That when we come together as a church, it has to be Jesus first. Jesus at the center. The absolute highest priority for us. Do you realize this? The highest priority for us as a church has got to be seeing Jesus be honored and worshipped and adored. Before anything else, that's at the heart of who we are as God's people. Making Jesus first. And like that sounds really obvious, doesn't it? I realize I'm preaching to the choir here. You are people who, who love Jesus. You want to see Jesus honored. But do you realize how easy it is as a church to get distracted? For, for us as individuals as well, to put other things first instead of Jesus? Think about this. When, when you walk into, the, into church on a Sunday, what's the attitude that you bring with you? 
Here are some of the attitudes that I've brought with me as I've walked into church from time to time. I think to myself, gosh, man, it was, it was a rush to get here on time today. Man, I'm tired. This whole church thing is just a real pain sometimes, having to be here week in, week out. That's my confession to you. I've thought that from time to time. I have from time to time walked into this church and thought, gosh, I just don't want to talk to any new people today because I, I don't have the energy for it. I don't have the emotions to, to go and meet new people again. I'd rather just sit by myself. I've thought that when I walked into church. I've walked into church and thought to myself, Lord, please let the music team play the music that I like today. I don't want other people's personal favourites. I want the songs that I like, Lord. Tell me if any of those are resonating with you as you've walked into church. It's easy, isn't it, to walk into church and to have lesser concerns at the front of our minds instead of Jesus first. So I wonder how different would it be for you and I, for every single one of us, to walk into church with that attitude that says, I want Jesus to be first today. I want my king to be honoured and glorified here. I'm going to come to church and I am going to worship Jesus and I'm not going to hold anything back. I'm going to come to church and I'm, I'm going to want to see and savour the goodness and the glory of Jesus tonight. Do you know what a difference that would make to the way that we did church together? Don't you think that you would, you would sing differently if Jesus first was your priority? Do you think you'd listen differently if Jesus first was our priority? We would talk differently to one another. We would pray differently if Jesus first was our mission. Jesus is Lord of the church. And the lesson we have to learn is that worshipping him is at the front of everything that we do. That's the second lesson here. Thirdly, lastly, last thing Paul wants us to see from this passage, see about Jesus, verse 19, is that Jesus is the Lord of reconciliation. Verse 19. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. I don't know whether you've ever had the, uh, the heartache of having a broken relationship, having a, a rift develop between you and someone that you love, but there's been a gulf in the relationship. Have you ever had that? To take those two parties who've been separated and to, to reconcile them, to bring them back together, that's a costly process. And if you've been through it, you'll know it is painful to reconcile. It's sacrificial to reconcile. It's actually nothing short of miraculous to see that happen, I think. And you see what, what Paul is saying here is that we have been the recipients of a reconciliation. That there was a rift. On one side there was us and on the other side there was God. That relationship had been broken apart and it wasn't anything to do with what God had done. It was entirely because of us and, as Paul says here, our evil behaviour. That was our, our problem. That's the biggest problem, in fact, of every human being on the planet. Separation from God. And yet Paul says that actually what God has done is something costly, sacrificial, miraculous. He's reconciled us to himself. How did it happen? Verse 20. He's made peace through his blood, the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. The one in whom all the fullness of God dwelt, that one shed his blood for you on the cross. Have you grasped that? That as you see Jesus nailed to the cross, what you are seeing is the author of life, the creator, surrendering himself to death so that we could have peace. Have you grasped that, friends? 
And that, that peace that Paul talks about here, we, we've got to have a correct understanding there. We think of peace as sitting around a campfire, holding hands, singing, all you need is love. That's not the sort of peace Paul is talking about here. This kind of peace that Jesus has, has won at the cross, it's more the idea of pacification. You know what that means? To pacify your enemies, to subdue them. Because at the time that, that Paul was writing this, there was this thing called the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. What the Peace of Rome was all about was about bringing the enemy nations, the enemy empires, under the rule of Rome. How did they do that? Well, it was, it was with their army, the, the army of Rome. Actually, the army was sometimes referred to itself as the Peace of Rome, quite ironically. How would they create peace? Well, they would go in and flatten you unless you bent the knee to Rome. The peace of Rome, you see, it was about creating order. It was about placing enemies under Rome. And so what Paul is saying here is that when God created peace, that actually what he's done is he's suppressed his enemies. He's defeated his enemies and brought them under his rule. The enemies of sin, death, and the devil. That's the kind of peace that God has created. And the result there, you see in verse 22, the result is that for anyone who willingly bows the knee. Anyone who willingly is reconciled to God, the result is that you stand holy in the sight of Almighty God. That when God looks at you, he doesn't see a single spot. You are blemish-free, perfectly clean. The result is that there is no accusation that can be leveled against you. No sin that can keep you down and keep you out of God's loving embrace. You are covered by the blood of Jesus. That's the result of this peace. Have you grasped that, friends? I don't, I don't know everybody in this room today. And so I want to speak to you tonight if, if you don't know that and if, if you're new to this Christian thing and you have not willingly come and bent the knee to Jesus. I, I want to urge you, if that's you, then please come and do that. Please come and be reconciled to God. The creator of life has shed his blood for you. He's made peace. He's made provision for you to be reconciled to God and to have that relationship with God repaired. Come to Jesus for that today. Don't delay from that. But I also want to speak to you tonight, if, if you are a Christian, if, if you are somebody who's experienced that reconciliation, you've had your sins forgiven by Jesus, then the question is, well, what has that got to do with us? This is... This is a message which we have heard a lot. This is the gospel, the good news. We preach it every week. The Colossians had heard this message. They'd already believed in the death of Jesus on their behalf to reconcile them to God. Why was Paul telling them again? What did he want to achieve by telling them? You see, it's there in verse 23. Jesus will be this great reconciler for you if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. If you continue. You see, Paul wants them to hold on to Jesus. Hold on to him. These Colossians, they were, they were tempted to go looking elsewhere for, for extra assurance of their, sanctif of their salvation, extra assurance of God's love. They were fishing around to try and get that kind of extra ounce of righteousness that would make God really happy with them. But you see, Paul is saying to these Colossians that actually if you buy the salesman's lies, if you try and add something onto Jesus, then you are going to get nothing. You're going to come away empty-handed. You'll lose everything. See how that works? Because, because Jesus is everything, if you move away from Jesus, you have nothing. 
This is, this is simple gospel maths for you. I'm going to put up a couple of equations. Hopefully this will help you remember this point. Gospel maths, it's this. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. You try and add anything to Jesus, you come away empty-handed. But Jesus plus nothing, Jesus alone, that gives you everything, everything you need. Jesus has done everything to make you acceptable to God. You know that, friends? You cannot be any more acceptable to God than you are today if you are in Jesus. If you're in Jesus, you are holy and without blemish and free from accusation. It cannot be more than that. You have the full Christian life if you have Jesus. I'll say that again. You have the full Christian life if you have Jesus. So hold on to him. What are we seeing today? We've seen that Jesus is the, the Lord of creation, so trust him. He's the Lord of the church, so worship him. And he's the Lord of reconciliation, so hold on to him. I had started with the question of how big is your Jesus? And I think we have to revisit that question now, don't we? Does, does your Jesus, the Jesus you follow, does he measure up to the, the Jesus of the Bible, the real Jesus? Or is your Jesus more pocket-sized? Is this a, the approximation of your Jesus? He, he fits nicely in your pocket, so you can take him with you whenever you want, and when you're sick of him, you can just put him away and forget about him. You can pray to this Jesus. He probably won't do anything about your situation, though, because he's not very powerful. It's not very interesting either. You might be entertained by him for a couple of minutes, but he's not going to inspire you. He's not going to move your heart to devotion. If your Jesus is small, then you are going to be plagued with doubts and insecurities that maybe you are missing out on something in the Christian life. Maybe there is more out there. Maybe you could be more full as a Christian. You're going to constantly ask that question if your Jesus is small. But friends, when you see Jesus as he really is, in all of his power and glory and grace, then you will realize that you have everything you need in him and you don't ever need to go looking for anything else. But I pray for us. Almighty Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this image that we have seen of you tonight. We thank you so much, Jesus, you are powerful, you are the creator and sustainer of all things, that you made us and that you know us. And thank you that because of that, we can trust you. Thank you so much, Jesus, that you are the, the firstborn from among the dead and now you rule your church as the resurrected reigning Lord. God, please help us to keep you at the center of all that we do. We want to live for your worship Thank you so much, Jesus, that you are the Lord of reconciliation. Thank you for shedding your blood for us, for laying down your life for us, to make us your own, to bring us peace. God, please help us to hold on to you and you alone. Help us to know that we are perfectly accepted by God if we hold on to you. We ask this in your name and for your glory's sake. Amen.